Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse, and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, how are we all doing today? Welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and this week on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by the acclaimed writer-director Andrew Haig, a filmmaker whose latest metaphysical drama, All of Us Strangers, is maybe best summed up as a bruise in cinematic form. It's all swirling blue and purple colours, symbolic of hurt and longing to heal. And like a bruise, it stays with you for a good number of days after you first watch it. The film tells the tale of a quiet screenwriter named Adam, played by Andrew Scott. Adam lives in a lonely London tower block, divorced from the world. His only neighbour is Harry, played by Paul Mescal, who one night makes a drunken move on Adam, only to be turned down. Instead, Adam boards a train and visits his childhood home, where an unexpected reunion takes the film on a dreamlike turn, representative of the scars that Adam still wears as a gay man who grew up in conservative 1980s Britain. As this drama goes on, that dream begins to curdle into a nightmare. I can't tell you how moving I found this incredible film, nor how overjoyed I was that Andrew came on the show to talk about it in such detail. In the spoiler conversation you're about to hear, Andrew tells me about the idea of aloneness, a concept separate from loneliness, and how it powers his work. We get into the construction of the film's devastating twists, the process of adapting the 1987 Japanese novel on which it's based, the meaning of the pop music threaded into the film, and the catharsis of writing this powerhouse story one that struck literally close to home for Andrew, who shot the film in the house he grew up in. 
Huge thanks to Andrew for being such a fantastic guest. And a massive thank you as ever to our Patreon supporters without whom this show could not exist. Our Patreon community, for those who don't know, is a place where you can get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and the chance to ask your questions to upcoming guests. All that and more for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee. Not a bad deal, I'd say. If you'd like to get involved, head to patreon.com forward slash script apart. We'd love to have you. Okay, that's all the admin out of the way. So let's get to it. This is the wonderful Andrew Haig discussing the first draft secrets of all of us strangers. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. First and foremost, Andrew, this beautiful film, All of Us Strangers, begins with a writer staring at a blank page before giving up and retreating to his sofa to watch a kind of grand designs type program. So my first question for you is, who told you about my personal writing process and why did you have to expose it to the world like that? <laughs> That's good. I feel like it's everybody's writing process. It's definitely my writing process. <laughs> it's sitting at your desk with good intentions, your mind full of ideas, and then three minutes later, uh, going to the sofa and not leaving the sofa for the rest of the day. <laughs> okay, well, there were a lot of homes under the hammer watchers that I think are about to feel very seen when they get to see this movie. Um, in yeah. Basically, when you get to the time when doctors are still on after like you watch the news at lunchtime, you're like, no, I've got to turn it off now. I've got to go back to work. Uh, well, that's an opening minute of this podcast that's not going to make any sense to our American listeners. And I'm here for it. Um, in all seriousness, Andrew, like it, it's such a privilege to be speaking with you about this extraordinary film. Your movies are all so fantastically intimate, but this one feels personal beyond measure. So I'll begin by I'll begin with this question. Like what is the swirl of emotion for you right now as this movie begins to reach audiences? You, you left so much of yourself on the page while writing it and shooting it. Is, is the mix of excitement and perhaps even nervousness different this time compared to previous projects simply because of how close to home or how literally close to home this film was to make? Yeah, definitely. I feel, I think whenever you write anything or you make any kind of film, there is a sense that you feel a little bit exposed anyway. I think any filmmaker will probably agree with that. When you put something out into the world that you've worked so hard on and you just sit and wait for people's reaction <laughs> to come back to you, it's a pretty terrifying moment. It certainly is for me. And I think the more personal the story becomes, the more that you become so wrapped up in the film and then in with the reaction to the film. So sort of a criticism of the film, you can't help but take it as a criticism of you <laughs> on a personal <laughs> level, which is not healthy. And I agree, it's not healthy, but it's the inevitability of sort of allowing yourself to be vulnerable, I suppose, in the process of writing and making and making the film. It's funny, like, uh, you know, when, when a British filmmaker shoots a project or two in the States, like you did with Looking and Lean on Pete, and then they come back to the UK, like we, we often refer to it as a homecoming. You really took that phrase to the next level, Andrew. You shot this in your actual childhood home. I'm, I'm curious, do you think you needed that distance that came with being based in the US for a few years? I understand you were based in San Francisco for a while. Did you need that to be able to tell a story like All of Us Strangers? Did the absence of home lead you towards this film about home in any way, do you think? 
Yeah, I think it did. And, you know, I'd made, yeah, Lean on Pete and then Looking, and then I did the North Waters, we shot up in the Arctic, which was massive and enormous and on, you know, glaciers. Um, and then I was in America and I was living in America throughout the whole of the pandemic. I was there, you know, I'm still sort of split between the two, but I spent all of the pandemic there. So I was so far from my home and so far from family um, and I wrote so much of it during that pandemic period, as we all were locked away in our houses, terrified to go out. And I spent so much time there sort of delving into my own past and looking through old photos and uh, listening to old music. And I think I needed to go there with this film. It felt like every film you write is a reaction to what's come before in some ways. And so I felt like this was a time to go internal as far as I could go internally. <laughs> yeah, you really feel that when you're watching it. It's such a culmination of this one particular streak that has existed in your work. Like you, you've previously spoken about how your films are, are often about aloneness, not necessarily loneliness. That's a part of it, you've said, but aloneness in the world, in understanding how you fit in, in possessing a feeling of abandonment and absence. All of Us Strangers kind of plunges us deeper into that feeling of isolation than perhaps ever before in your work. How do you make that distinction between aloneness and loneliness, first and foremost? And uh, where do you think your commitment to exploring it comes from? Because as I say, it's it's been a fixture of your work all the way up till now. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think there is a difference. I think loneliness feels very heavy all of the time, that sense of, and sometimes aloneness slips into loneliness for sure, but sometimes aloneness can be quite sweet and delicious and delightful and you're just by yourself existing in the world and, and that can be okay. But I think all of the time there was this, I personally always feel just slightly separate from the world around me. And I think a lot of people feel like that. And I think I'm always trying to dig into the feeling of being alone, uh, what it's about, what it represents, how we can soften the edges of it when it gets too painful, like what it is to feel not alone in certain circumstances. And I think, look, I've always pretty much, I think I was a pretty lonely kid and I felt lonely growing up. And I think when you're gay as well, which obviously I am and growing up in a certain place and time, I always felt separated from the world around me and from my family and everything. So I think all of those things speak to, to that feeling that I'm trying to explore. And this, of course, is not your first adaptation. You've described how you like to find in existing literature a conceit to hang your preoccupations on. And from there, it seems that you're never afraid to kind of bend or distort or completely uproot the source material to fit those preoccupations. Like you very much make it your own. That's absolutely the case with All of Us Strangers from the Sounds of Things. The source novel was a Japanese horror story, essentially. I haven't had the chance to read it, unfortunately, but um, I'm really curious. Like, Are you able to give us an overview of what that original story entailed? And what about it started setting off fireworks in your brain in terms of, hey, maybe there's a, a framework here for a, a different story that I want to tell that's personal to me? Yeah, the original story was... Um very much uh, felt like it was traditional in terms of the its depiction of ghosts, let's say. But what was in that story was still a melancholic, lonely screenwriter living in a in a in that in the story in Tokyo, and unable to connect 
with his work, but also essentially connect with himself, and then is drawn back into the past and comes across his parents again. And in that original story, he meets a woman. It's a heterosexual love story that's also happening. And it is still about the kind of connections between those two stories, the emotional romantic story and the and revisiting the parental story. So the, the conceit and the construction of that is quite similar, but then it was like, how do I take that and how do I turn it that it makes sense within a British setting to start with. I think we have a different understanding of the supernatural. Um, and so it's how does that, how do I work with the ghost elements of that story? But also I think what was so fascinating was I felt like in that original story, I could feel the author's loneliness, let's say. I feel like there's no way he could not have written that story unless he was expressing something about he felt about the world. And so I felt like for my job to adapt this was to take that and do the same thing for an audience, make it my own, allow it to express how I feel about so many things, and then take the story from there. And I do love, there's something amazing about adaptation. You read books in order to connect and to find something in that book that speaks to you on a personal level. So if I'm going to turn that into a film, I need to do the same thing for my audience, take it, take it in, make it personal, then give it out to a new audience. That makes a lot of sense now you said that. Um, it's curious to hear that the the character in the original novel was also a screenwriter. There's um there's something really interesting about like the fact in in your movie that Adam is a writer by trade, but it doesn't necessarily kind of crop up a lot in the movie, aside from some <laughs> some very funny lines about uh writers knowing nothing and how it's not real writing. Um I do think it helps though, both with theme, you know, writing is such a solitary profession and this is a film about isolation, but also kind of tone perhaps, like there's something about knowing that Adam's a writer, writers live in their imaginations. So when the line starts to blur between reality and fantasy in your movie, it kind of makes sense that, you know, it, it makes sense more than perhaps if the character had been like a plumber or something, because writers already tread a line of revisiting their pasts and conversing with the ghosts who live there. It sounds like that, you know, from what you were just describing about your experience of the pandemic, that's kind of what you were doing. Yeah, exactly. And it's so fascinating when you're a writer because you so just immerse yourself in your own head. Like you can sit there for sometimes a very, very long time writing <laughs> away and the rest of the world means nothing. It's vanished. You are in this own insane world inside your head and it creates its own reality and you find yourself slipping into that reality. And sometimes it can be quite hard if you've been writing for a long time or hard on something, then to even go out into the normal world. It sort of makes no sense anymore. And I think also as a writer, especially if you're trying to uncover um, elements of yourself or express things that, as, as you see it, you really have to dig into your own history, your own sense of self, who you are in the world. And, and that process gets all knotted up together. Um, and I find writing quite, I find it a very hard pursuit. Like it's not easy. I struggle with it a lot. It takes me a long time to do drafts. Um, and it's not easy. You're going to emotional places that you would like to sometimes not go to, you know, and I often find myself like bursting into tears when I'm writing. And I, 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 I it's quite an emotionally um, complicated uh, activity. And, and part of that struggle from from what I've read, Andrew, is, um, you know, you often do multiple, multiple, multiple drafts before you get a movie right. Um, can you talk to me about like your first draft of All of Us Strangers? Like, 
Was it largely the same story from, from the very beginning, or were there any kind of drastically different ideas that you'd contemplated for a moment before finding the right execution? Mm. I mean, to start with, it was terrible. So that's the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think a very, I mean, before I hand in a first draft, I do like so many drafts to get to that. What is the official first draft? Um, and it's so funny when you're writing because you have this, this, this excitement of the idea and what it can be. And you're so full of like, oh my God, this is the thing I want to write. And then you start writing and then your articulation of that idea is so disappointing sometimes <laughs> because it doesn't live up to what you want it to be at that stage. Um, and I know to start with, with this, because it was definitely not, it was taking off from reality. And my other films have been very grounded. Trying to navigate that was complicated. How much genre do I lean into? I think in early drafts, there was more genre. There was more elements of, of what the supernatural was doing to Adam. Because in the novel, he's sort of like falling apart physically as the ghosts take their toll on him. And so I think in certain drafts that happened. And, and in, the, in the actual original book, the the character that I have as Harry was essentially a malevolent spirit that was trying to destroy Adam. So, which obviously is not what my film is, but there were lots of stages when I was just trying to work out how much ghostliness is in this story, how much logic uh, that usually gets put on ghost stories am I going to apply to my story? So there was a lot of changes with that. And then it's also like, I'm trying to understand a lot of kind of complicated emotions. So often first versions of that scene can be very obvious and then so much of the time it's about trying to bury things or not burying things too much it's like that balance between being obvious and being subtle well it's interesting you'd mentioned the kind of groundedness of your previous work i went into the movie kind of with that knowledge of your past work expecting a certain groundedness and then gradually you kind of peel back this film that has this lyricism to it and this otherworldliness and the, the kind of first signal that perhaps like this isn't the grounded world that we previously lived in in your films comes with the, the kind of location. So we kind of descend upon this completely empty apartment block that it seems like Adam has been living in for years. And, um, you know, it, it's such a brilliant location. It really contributes to this sense of isolation. He has this big wide window that he's often positioned against full of all this kind of wonderful bustling London life unfolding beneath him. It's kind of like activity and, and a hum that he kind of floats above, detached from. This building is it's populated by him and Harry, no one else. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, like obviously, like living in London, I know that <laughs> the housing situation would mean that uh, that probably would not be an empty, empty block. Um, can you talk to me about like um, the location as kind of a storytelling tool itself to begin with? Yeah, it was it was my biggest um, struggle, I suppose, was trying to set up a situation that would feel real enough, but slightly shifted from reality from the very beginning. So you would sort of sink into what happens within the story in a natural way. So it didn't suddenly become a, like, what the hell is, what the fuck is happening now? This makes no sense. So that apartment block became this kind of central thing. But also the way I saw it, I suppose, in the end was, a manifestation of how he feels in that apartment block. So in reality, there actually could be people living there, but he feels like there's nobody there. And I think that's what it feels like to be alone sometimes. You can be literally walking through a city and you feel like there's you're just there's just you and there's nothing else around you. 
And so every choice I tried to make was, okay, how would you represent his emotional state? in terms of location, in terms of clothing, in terms of everything. And so that was sort of my starting point. Um, but also there was a strangeness to London sometimes. Some of those outskirt things, like even that we shot it in Stratford, where all these towers have gone up. And even when you go there now, there's a lot of the towers that no one's quite moved in yet, or they haven't quite passed their health and safety. And so there's a strange emptiness to some of those buildings. Um, but it, But it's interesting because it is about setting the tone from the outset like no one's on their phone for example like there's no phones like nobody has a phone so it was a very conscious choice to to shift the reality of the story from the start mm. and of course in this this block we meet adam who is adam to you andrew and 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 if it's not too personal a question like how do you sum up the kind of bleed from your life into his as you as you wrote the project yeah, I think it's always really fascinating to me what what of myself goes into the characters. And in many ways, I'm all of the characters <laughs> or parts of me in all of those characters. And I do have this sense, the more that I'm making films, that I realise that the whole film becomes probably a representation of how I feel in the world. And even the conflicts within myself are then placed within conflicts between characters. So I see there's, there's there's definitely elements of me in Adam, but there's definitely elements of me in Harry, and there's definitely elements of me in the mum and the dad, as well as them being representations of other people close to me in my lives, in my life. So I feel like I'm definitely, I mean, look, I'm not single. I've been in a relationship for a long time. So they're always fundamental differences but in terms of how i feel there's definitely a crossover and and once you had adam how did you construct harry as someone who could both compliment adam and sort of challenge him at times um i'm curious also whether there were kind of different iterations of harry's backstory or how much of harry's backstory to reveal because the film kind of uh walks a real tightrope in terms of giving away just just about enough about who harry is yeah that, that's so true it's that i knew because where the story ends up be going uh, i needed to not give too much away about harry because essentially he is there at least to start with for adam to try and allow adam to come to terms with some things but at the same time i wanted him to have his own element of you know, character as well. And so it was a real fine balance of like, what do we need to say about him? What can Paul as an actor express about him without us having to explain it? And then what small elements can we bring to the surface about him so we understand him enough to care about him? Because it's, you know, you need to care about him, otherwise it's of no, it's of no interest. Um, so it was a tricky one. It was absolutely a tricky one. And I went through lots of different versions of understanding him more, understanding him in less, understanding nothing about him, and then just allowing bits to kind of bleed through. Um, it was tricky because there's lots of tricky things that I'm sort of trying to do with the story that also doesn't fit in with any traditional idea of, let's say, ghost stories either. Um, same with the parents. It's like, they are also individuals within this story. And sometimes you wonder who's brought them into existence because it doesn't feel like it's just Adam that's brought them into existence because they seem to have their own life 
around the story as well. And I like the idea of playing with all of those things because I think it sort of sways the audience sort of off balance sometimes in an interesting way. Hey everyone, this is Al. Just jumping in with a quick word about one of our great sponsors this week. I know this is a podcast about first drafts, but guys, we have got to talk about Final Draft, the world's best-selling screenwriting software. Simply put, it's the easiest way of actualizing that exciting idea you have for a new screenplay. Final Draft 13 just dropped, and take it from me, it's by far the most customizable version of the software yet, full of easy-to-use tools so that you can get more done with your writing sessions. With industry-renowned features like the Final Draft Beatboard, Outline Editor, and Navigator function at your fingertips, you're going to find yourself charging towards your storytelling goals more efficiently than ever before. It's the first choice tool of professional screenwriters everywhere for good reason. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart your 2024 writing journey today by visiting finaldraft.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Let me confess something to you guys. When it comes to caffeine, I'm going to throw my hands up and say I'm an absolute addict. For years, I've wanted to reduce my coffee consumption so I can sleep better and feel less jittery. But coffee has always felt kind of vital to my writing process, to the point where I've worried that my productivity would drop off without it. Then I discovered Magic Mind. It's a delicious daily green shot full of all sorts of great organic ingredients that help you get into your flow state without caffeine shakes and sleepless nights. It contains a compound called L-theanine that reduces your body's stress levels and an ingredient called Bacopa Monieri that turbocharges your working memory. Try it today and start crushing your goals for 2024 by visiting magicmind.com forward slash Janscript apart, where you can get 30 days for free when you take out a three month subscription. Use the code script apart at checkout, where you can also take advantage of their exclusive January offers. That address again is magicmind.com forward slash Janscript apart, or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely swayed. I, I went into this movie knowing nothing and I, I'm so glad that I did because the reveal of Adam's parents was so stunning. So have, having met Harry for the first time, Adam boards a train heading to a location that's kind of familiar to him. He sees this man as he stands in a field and he follows him. And, and there's something about, perhaps it's it's the costuming of Jamie Bell's character, but for a second there feels like this might be a, this might be a sexual encounter perhaps. And Adam begins to follow this man. But that all is is a remarkable sleight of hand. And instead it's revealed as Adam follows him home that, you know, this couple in front of him are his parents. Can you talk to me about how you chose to handle that reveal? Because it's so cleverly disguised. Yeah, like I knew I wanted it. It was so tricky because I was really terrified that it would not work. You're trying to, it's a pretty strong conceit to make an audience believe, not laugh at, and care about the emotional stakes of that conceit. So I knew I wanted us to feel like we were just slowly drifting off into some odd liminal space that was wrapped up in 
in Adam and the, the sort of sort of semi-sexual element that you feel at the beginning was always there and sort of fascinating to me how you feel like it's both a sleight of hand but actually then also feeds into this idea of parental love and romantic love being entwined together and how they do inform each other and your your sexuality is so wrapped up in how your parents see you as well it's a very complicated relationship there um and I wanted it to both be a surprise, but also not be a shock what was happening. So it was it was a tricky scene to get right, both writing and editorially and shooting to sort of make you feel like you're drifting off into this liminal space. Yeah, there's a really key sort of moment, I suppose, in selling that where Adam kind of closes his eyes and it almost signals the kind of descent into something more dreamy. A another thing that I think really sells that scene I you have to kind of efficiently communicate I suppose to your audience that these really are his parents and uh this scene reminded me of something that I heard long ago that I might have misremembered but I seem to remember something about how when you write characters a trick that you employ is to invent five key events in their relationship and in this scene there's there's all these stories that they're they're kind of referring to in passing that help help you buy into the belief that oh, these people all really know each other. So, you know, there's kind of a passing reference to this time Adam got hit by a car and his mum rushed him to hospital, for example. Have I got that right? Is that kind of a trick you regularly employ? And did you indeed employ it while writing All of Us Strangers? I think I probably did subconsciously. I do feel like if you can, the, the specificity of relationships and the things that draw people together, the memories that they build together are always tiny, small, strange things and so for me i knew that they had to be that because it's a very odd scene you know they sort of recognize they know who he is but they sort of know he's an adult and they act as if they just haven't seen him for a while um and then they want to know about him what he's done and there's all that kind of very parental stuff that i wrote in of sort of like they're so proud of him and they're so happy that he's a writer and all these kind of things that he plays down because so often you do play things down in your life. And then all those like stories that come up, which incidentally are also my stories. So I was hit by a car when I was a kid and I did, you know, have to get terrified of fireworks and all of those kind of things. So they are also my stories. But um, I feel like because they're so sort of distinct, but also everybody's sort of got those stories. We all understand what those things are, those parental child stories. Um, and that is that to me is the key, is to get them in early enough so we buy the relationships and then stop questioning them going forward. I love how, you know, as you mentioned, it's such a strong conceit and you could have just, you know, stopped there, but instead you kind of build on that conceit. And what what unfolds is something kind of unlike anything I remember seeing in a in a ghost movie before. These ghosts have fears and emotions and regrets that they're working through even in death. Maybe we can talk about a few of the scenes in which that really comes to life because God, they they broke me some of these moments in the film. Um, Adam's mother rejects his homosexuality. They're, they're having this kind of one on one, this heart to heart, and. Um, she has a response to him telling her that I don't like girls that that's kind of rooted in the values of her era. Can you talk me through what's happening in that scene, Andrew, and, and how hard it was to write? It was quite hard to write and it was a scene that took a while to get right. Um, I knew it was sort of trying to do 
quite a lot of things at the same time, which I think is what makes it an interesting scene. First of all, we've got this lovely nostalgia that's been set up of him coming back into this world. But because he's gay and openly gay in you know his life, um, there's a secret that is there again, suddenly, even though he's an adult, that could disrupt this sort of quite beautiful nostalgia that is being set up. And I love that idea because it's like the truth behind nostalgia is always more complicated. There's always something usually quite painful and, and underneath that that needs to be un, unpicked. And then when he's sitting there with the mum, there's a number of things that I'm trying to get across, which is, A, this is how the world thought about gay people in the 80s. Now, as a gay person, you carry that around with you if you grew up in that time, even though the world has changed. So being reminded of all of that is quite emotionally overwhelming to Adam because it has all been reinvigorated how he used to feel. And how we used to feel, we carry around every day as adults, even if it's 30 years later uh, and you've got over seemingly that kind of pain of growing up. But also the mother is a spirit of her time and he knows that and he's trying to be compassionate sort of to her, make her feel better, which I think is very common for gay kids. They often try to make their parents feel better, even though really it should be the parents trying to make them feel better. Um, and I wanted to suddenly feel like this lovely version of a story was getting complicated by this reveal. And that leads us kind of spirals off into the rest of into the rest of the story. Um, and they be beautifully performed by the two of them, which is is so good. Um, but yeah, it was a complicated scene to write. And I think it sort of changes the direction of the film. Yeah, absolutely does. Especially when um, it, it's followed up quite quickly with um, a one-on-one -on -one with Adam's dad. It, it feels significant that there's a softness to Adam's dad that um, his mother perhaps doesn't have at first. You don't indulge the cliche of it being the kind of no-nonsense working-class northern dad who's homophobic, that their conversation isn't about his sexuality, which he's much more accepting of, so much as it's about his regrets. And I think it was at this point that I realised that I, I don't. I've seen kind of ghost stories before where there is an emotionality to the ghost, but um, I hadn't seen anything like this. Yeah, it's it's so true because I I knew that. When you first meet the ghost, you're not really sure that they've got any conscious self or sense of themselves. And I wanted that to slowly develop through the story. So you're like, what is happening? These people seem to have their own lives. And to me, I guess it comes from this basis of feeling that this film was about longing to be understood. And all of the characters, all four of them, have sort of been brought into existence out of that desire to rectify mistakes as a desire to connect. And so I wanted them to have their own personalities. And I do like the idea that the dad is soft because it's a funny thing. Like when I speak to so many uh, friends of mine who come out with their parents, it is actually, maybe it's a British thing, I don't know. I think British society is quite matriarchal. Um, but the dads often actually be end up being the softer ones. And it's the mothers that find it slightly more complicated. And that's probably no fault of... The mothers rather than the pressure we put on motherhood as a way that they are responsible for their child um and look you know i i the, the the jamie bell character certainly feels a bit like a version of my dad there's definitely some big similarities between the two of them between the two of them there so it was a it was a yeah it was a lovely scene complicated scene emotionally to write and to and to shoot 
And what is it about getting closer to these apparitions of his parents that kind of sparks a bit of an unraveling in Adam? Because we, ha we have a scene on the tube that flirts with horror, and we have a scene in, in a nightclub that flirts with horror. And it, it feels like either seeing his parents is kind of bringing up something that he's worked hard to suppress and is now pushed to the brink, or perhaps like he's already on some brink and that's what's causing him to imagine that he's seeing his parents. I, I couldn't quite work out which way around. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both, but I think in my head there is definitely more of a sense that in in throwing himself into his past, kind of coming to understand the things that have defined him and the things that he has not been able to deal with, which obviously is still the grief of losing them, but also the complications of parental and child relationships that he had and all of the things he feels about his sexuality has been buried. And in, in unpicking it all, it releases it. And I think for Adam to have moved through this story, he has to go to the brink and allow it to be released. I mean, essentially, look, you could see it as a therapy session. <laughs> and it's about in talking about the past, it allows you to move forward in some way. But that moving forward can be quite painful and can make you sick. And I, you know, I'm a big believer that the the body keeps the score. There's a good book about it, that emotional pain resides physically in your body. Like it was fascinating making this film again and going back to my childhood home and I started getting eczema again on my skin. I hadn't had eczema since I was a kid and it physically started coming up on like my elbows and behind my knees and on my stomach, all the places I used to get it as a kid. And I'm like, what the fuck is <laughs> happening? And Andrew was the same actually. He started having like a rash coming up on him and it was like, we were, we talked about it and we were like, literally our bodies in going back into this world of, sort of uh, of our own past was having a physical reaction to it you mentioned release there i should i should mention at this point that there are there are references to pop songs 80s pop songs that are threaded all the way through this movie and you know i've read that a lot of the, the kind of pop music of that era for kids who were closeted perhaps even grown men who were closeted you know the pet shop boys and frankie goes to hollywood these kind of artists you know, their songs offered expressions of something that they were sometimes unable to express themselves. Can you talk me through like the way that those songs function in the film? And yeah, whether whether they were always in the script and, and whether or not you had backups, because I suppose it would have been a it would have been a real issue for you had you not been able to license, for example, the Frankie song that uh, is so pivotal to this. Yeah, it's true. Like most of the songs are in the script and we got them licensed before because I knew they needed to be there for, you know, the right purpose. But pop music, as you say, is so fascinating, especially pop music, because it works for kids in a way that allows bigger emotional expression and allows things to be understood that they can't even articulate as kids. Um, and they were all songs I loved growing up, I guess. And they were songs that meant something to me growing up. I remember having the Frankie Goes to Hollywood album in like, you know, the early 80s and loving that music. And even before I knew who I was and that I was gay, there was a sensibility in that album that I just adored. Same with the Petra Boys. You know, when their first album came out, I was only 12, I guess. But I bought Please, their album, and devoured it and became obsessed by it. So there was a sensibility, again, it's a connection that is coming from another piece of art that is somehow reflecting how you feel about things, even if you can't put your finger on exactly why that might be. Was the scene in bed where Adam gets into bed with with his mother, um, was, was that a fun one to write? It seems like the most kind of playful, the most kind of leaning into 
the the conceit of the film it's also heartbreaking of course but it, it's visually with with um with adam in his pajamas it's the most kind of like abs- absurdist i suppose for lack of a better phrase Completely. I, I love that scene. And I knew I wanted it to, to kind of flicker between being absolutely absurd, you know, like this man wearing these pajamas that don't fit him. But then somehow that makes total sense. It's like we try and find our childhood selves again, but of course it doesn't fit and it looks kind of stupid. But at the same time, it's sort of funny and emotional. And then all of the things they talk about about the world that they could have had and how they could have been there for each other. And they do it lightly and playfully. And then you realize that horrible sense of loss as well that was part of that. And then they never got to do that. And that's what's so, I find so both sad and beautiful about it. All these imagined lives that we have with people that don't always play out the way we expect them to play out but it was a really lovely scene it's all in one shot that scene which i think is even nicer it's one long long like five and a half minute take and it's so well performed by them and you sort of laugh at times and then you feel sad at times and then you're scared because you realize he's now built up this sense of themselves together but that's also going to be lost like there's always a tension in the script that i was trying to do that like these parents have come back but of course they're not going to be there forever again you know, what ghost story has the ghosts there forever? So as he falls in love with them again and he reconnects, you also feel like, well, they're never going to be there forever, which is, of course, what we have in our real lives with our parents. So it's exactly the same thing is happening again as he's got them back. He knows, as we all know, that at some point we will lose them. Which brings us, of course, to the scene in the diner. This scene just absolutely (laughs) ripped my heart out at one point kind of like looked around and saw everyone else having a pretty similar emotional reaction. Can you talk to me about like uh, the construction of this scene and and the degree to which this was perhaps one of the hardest scenes in the film to get right on the page because it's, it's, it's so heartbreaking, but so pivotal. Yeah, it's a fascinating one because actually the writing of it was probably the easiest scene to write. Strangely. I, I, I didn't write it until everything else had almost you know, worked. And I sort of kept that scene separate. Uh, And then I was like, okay, now I'm going to concentrate on this scene. And because I knew everything else so well now, I felt like I I understood what all three characters needed in this scene. I I know what Andrew needed. I know what uh, Jamie needed. uh, Sorry, the dad and the mum needed. Because they all need something in that scene. Because it's not just about Adam. It's about the parents too. And for me, it's the representation of love being about what you give to someone else is as important as what they give to you. And that's what I feel like Adam understands in that scene. So then when he goes back to Harry and Harry needs him in that moment, he understands that love is not a purely selfish thing. It's like, I need to be there for someone else. And also, but also he gets so much from that scene and he gets to say goodbye. And I feel like in a strange way, even if you've lost your parents or haven't lost your parents, you understand that that will probably never happen. You won't have that situation. And I think it's something we all want to have, to be able to to leave each other in a way that everything feels like it's um, ready, you know, that we're ready to leave. But that never happens. So I think that's why it ends up being such an emotional scene. The fact that it takes place in a diner as well is really interesting. I, I think like there's something that kind of undercuts the entire scene with, with like a sense of ridiculousness. The fact that he has this giant family meal in front of him and 
must look a bit mad. Um, but it, the thing about the diner scene, I suppose, is it's it's such an eruption of emotion that I kind of assumed it to be the film's climax, at least emotionally. Uh, like the assumption that I had made is that after that scene, Adam would be in an emotional place where he's able to kind of return home and make good on his mother's request that he gives it a go with Harry. Instead, there's this twist that I really did not see coming. Can you talk me through what felt so devastating and beautiful about this ending and whether or not it was always how you envisioned closing out this story? At at what point in the script's development you landed on this as this kind of like twist of the knife late on? It was very hard. uh, And I went through a lot of different versions of trying to understand how you even end a film like this. I mean, look, I knew, I always knew that, to give a spoiler, that Harry was dead. And if you look back at the film and you watch it again, those sort of things can become a little bit clearer, I guess. But outside, I look, in my, my, in my heart, I'm like, I want them to be together and I want a very happy ending. Like, it makes sense. And there were times when I thought, maybe that's just what I should deliver. That he goes and sees the parents and he's learned what he needs to learn and then there's a happy ending. But somehow it just felt glib that ending or it felt like i understand why people might want it i still understand why people might want it now i completely understand the emotion of that but it sort of then didn't make sense to me because then suddenly rather than it being this the whole film being this expression of something it then suddenly felt like oh my god it's really real so they were just ghosts and Ad and Harry will have seen that ghost and now they're just going to move forward with the rest of their lives knowing that they've seen ghosts felt strange to me and also <laughs> I wanted to get to the next level beneath that, which is, okay, but what is love and what can it be and what is the importance of it? And we all go through life finding love, losing love, you know, and to be honest, there was also a sense that the 80s of it, like the 80s were horrendous for queer people. Lots of young people lost their loves But it was also the time when the world realized that queer people could find love with each other. And so I think that was always also something in my heart, too, as I was telling this ending of the story, that the power for me personally, the importance is that Adam has realized that he can feel love and understand it and find it and find it again. And that that is the hopefulness of the story and the importance of the story is not you will find your soulmate. It's that that love is a possibility and it is of cosmic importance that we try and find it. And what do those those lyrics mean to you whispered into Harry's ear as the uh, as the movie's kind of parting shot? Yeah, they just mean for me, I am convinced and maybe it's just me that that the love is about being there for somebody else. And if you understand that you are there for them, you understand that that is the feeling of love. Now, like I'm also a parent now. So I'm both a child and I'm in a relationship and I'm a parent. And I understand that in all of those things, the common ground is a desperate compassion for the other person. Um, And I think so when he whispers those words to him, that reflects that, that I will be there for you, 
when you need me to be there for you. And at that moment, Harry needs him to be there for him. Do you feel more at peace with anything for having made this movie, Andrew? I do, actually. It's a strange thing. I think I have both come to terms with my understanding of love, which has been a good thing. I've also become much more compassionate to my parents and to parenting and understanding the complications of that. Um, and it, it has, I, I don't know if it's been like liberating in any great sense, but I definitely feel like I understand myself a little better. And I always just hope that what the film would do for other people is that they would leave the cinema and they would be like, you know what, I'm probably just going to like call my mum or I'm going to go and give my kid a hug or I'm going to like hold my partner a bit firmer that night. And I feel like I get a lot of emails from people and that is the case and that different people take different things from it. And I kind of love that because I knew I wanted the film to be quite sincere in that emotion. And as I've got older, I've been less scared of being sincere because when you're younger, you're so terrified it's going to come across as cheesy or manipulative or whatever those things. And I'm like, I'm 50 now and I'm all right with being sincere about the importance of those emotions. That's really beautiful and a beautiful place to start to begin to wrap up this conversation, Andrew. Um, I should ask though, before you go, have you started to to think about what comes next after all of us strangers? Have, having told such a personal story, are you beginning to look ahead now at the stories that might follow it? I think there's lots of there's lots of projects I have bubbling under, and it's so interesting to me about what I choose to do next. It's funny that you talk about um, like people are seeing this as a culmination of something. So the next thing I do is kind of interesting because is it the same as that is it separate than that do I need to have a different conversation right now after this because everything is always seen in relationship to what you've just done so I just want to be careful about that so there's a, so there's a few projects there's like three or four projects that could all sort of happen um and I'm just trying to work out what the next one should be sounds like you should watch a few episodes of grand designs and take it easy exactly I think that's a good point just lie on the sofa for six months but i think you know what you're not wrong i think that's exactly what i should be doing because you need something to bubble up by itself you need to just watch some bad bad television uh, if anyone deserves it you do um this has been so much fun andrew thank you for this beautiful film and thanks for this great conversation i've had a blast chatting with you brilliant thanks you Al. that was great thank you You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>